This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Seeks to be defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So we've been going through this series on the attributes of God, and we've been talking a lot about how important it is to understand these attributes, to understand, uh, in order to understand God, we have to understand how he is and who he is and why he is. So we use this word attributes. What are attributes? And I need to ask this question. I need you to answer this question because if you answer it correctly, then you'll know what it is to truly know God. If you don't understand real attributes, then you really won't understand what you should be looking for in God and what you should be expecting of God. Attributes are descriptions. Uh, let's say I asked you about your attributes. Attributes are descriptions of you that are true all the time. When someone knows your attributes, they will know you better. If someone were to describe your attributes to someone else, what would they say? If if someone said, I want to know who this person is, tell me about them. What attributes would people share about you? Would your attributes make you a candidate for friendship? Would your attributes uh, be you a candidate for make you a candidate for a, a romantic relationship if that's something that you're looking for? Would your attributes make you uh, a, a desirable partner? Would those attributes make you a desirable family member? What would people say about you? Or reverse that. What attributes do you look for in other people? What is it that you look for when you try to discern whether or not uh, I want to be friends with this person, or maybe I want to date this person, maybe I want to spend time with this family member more than, than I'm forced to? How do you determine what it is that you look for in people in order to spend real time and to build relationship and to build expectations? Now, this is a difficult question. Because it can be really hard to ascertain the attributes of others. Why? Because most often, we observe outcomes in people more than actual character attributes in in people. What do I mean? Well, this happens. uh, An easy example is just to look at entertainment. When you look at the realm of entertainment, uh, think about people uh, uh, of whom you are a fan. If if we're fans of an artist or an athlete or an author or anyone with a public platform, what is it what is it that that commends them to us? What is it that makes you become a fan of a person? We love what they do, right? We love the outcomes, the observable outcomes in that person, in that artist, in that author, in that actor. And so we assume that if we really like their performance and their performance has spoken to us on some level, we assume that their performance is a microcosmic representation of who they really are. So, so because what they do is so impressive, they must be impressive as a person. Uh, if, 
if if those things are, you know, if there are things that they say that reflect something I really feel, right? If there's something that an artist sings, if there are lyrics that a singer sings and it speaks to, it, it comforts me on some level, then not only are their lyrics comforting, I see them as a comforter. I assume that they must be a comforter. So if what they do makes me feel comforted, they must be a comforting person. If what they say perfectly encapsulates how I feel, they must be so perceptive. Athletes are praised for winning, for performing. I want to win, so I vicariously live through that athlete's accomplishments with the hopes that I can glean from them what it takes to win. But here's the problem with that. Those are disciplines for a desired outcome. Outcomes are not attributes. Hear me again. Outcomes are not attributes. You see this again in sports all the time. I like that person. Why? Because they're a winner. And I want to be a winner. So if I have a certain career over here, I may not do anything that that athlete does, but that athlete is a winner. And because they're a winner, I look up to them. They're my hero. They're my idol. I like the way, I love seeing winners. And so I only just follow winners. You see a lot of that in a lot of self-help books. You see that a lot in business books. Follow the people that win and emulate what they do to be successful. Winning is not a character attribute. It is just an outcome. And if you just look at outcomes and you you use that as the as the rubric by, by which you judge whether or not someone has these attributes you want you will be let down because here's the question you have to ask while the outcomes might be the same you might have two people who are winners how they got there are their actual character attributes so it's not enough to just identify someone and say hey this person's a winner i need to follow them they're my hero that's what it is Sadly, this is what happens so often when we look at our heroes. And again, when we look at athletes, this weekend is a weekend where more people have been inducted into the NBA Hall of Fame. Typically, when somebody gives their Hall of Fame speech or when they are presented, there will be a number of things that will be brought up, anecdotes and stories and sometimes heartfelt experiences. The main reason why they're there is because of the outcomes, right? Nothing wrong with that. The main reason why they're there is because of their performance. Usually the stories that are told will just give more stories about the performances. But once in a while, you get a little bit of a peek into some of the athletes' actual character attributes. Sometimes you might find out a little bit more about who they are as a person and how those positive attributes have contributed to their performance. I'm reminded several years back of the Hall of Fame induction of Michael Jordan. Uh, arguably the greatest uh, basketball player uh, of all time. And in his speech, we've heard a lot about this speech. And listen, the performance can't be argued or questioned, right? Incredible uh, performer, won at the highest level multiple, multiple times, six championships, incredible story. And during his Hall of Fame induction speech, you did see some attributes come through, but these weren't attributes that we, I would argue, would want to ever emulate. Because during his speech, he spent time talking about kind of uh, berating the people who he felt like overlooked him. He brought in the person who made his varsity basketball team over him during his freshman year when he didn't make the team, just to remind him that uh, I deserve to be there more than you. 
He brought in certain coaches that he felt like had overlooked him. He brought in people that he thought uh, did not see his greatness for what it was. But then when you, when you juxtapose that with someone else in that same Hall of Fame induction ceremony, a man by the name of David Robinson, and you started to hear the words that he said and what he talked about, you got another sense of what those attributes really look like for him. Now, this was someone who people thought maybe was too soft because he wasn't a chest thumper and he wasn't somebody that was uh, berating people on his own team in order to get them to perform better. He wasn't that kind of a, a leader. But all, most of what he talked about during his speech was related to the relationships that he held to that gave him a lot of strength. He talked about his wife. He talked about his children. He talked about the relationships he has with his sons and how important it is for him to impart into them these incredible qualities that make you a good person, not just what makes you a good basketball player. Why am I going down this road? Because ultimately, if we don't understand what it means to, to identify true attributes of a person, then we'll never, we, we'll never be able to know if we can actually trust that person. If all I know are the outcomes that you have, that doesn't tell me whether or not I can trust you as a person because outcomes aren't attributes. So at the end of the day, placing trust in heroes is always a fool's errand because if one of those heroes fail, if or when they fail, you'll be shocked and disappointed. Why? Because you thought you knew them, which meant you thought you could trust them. Outcomes are not attributes. When we hear about certain famous people and we hear about really horrible things that they do, we're shocked and appalled. But why? What made you think you knew them? When, when sadly, we, we heard the, the horrific stories of the abusive, uh, the, the abusive tendencies of Ravi Zacharias and all of the, not, notwithstanding the amazing sermons and the amazing teachings and, and, and the amazing lectures and debates that have helped people's faith for decades. And then we find out the horrific sexual abuse and manipulation of women who did not have his platform or power. And the first knee-jerk reaction people had was, no, that can't be true. No, I, I refuse to believe that. Why? What makes us not believe that? Because that's my hero and his outcomes are so great that I assume those outcomes were representative of an actual character. But you don't know that. Winning, performing, that's not an attribute of your character. It's just an outcome. And this is the reason why, even within relationships, this is the reason why in many ways, especially in marriage, this is why infidelity is so crushing to marriages, because you thought you knew enough about the attributes of the other person to be able to trust them. When we are in relationship with each other, hopefully there's something, there are attributes about you that I have seen and said, I, those attributes make that person trustworthy. And hopefully, there are attributes about me that make you say, there's something about these attributes that make this person trustworthy. I know they're not perfect, but there are these attributes in place that make them trustworthy. The problem is, humans, this is the most difficult thing ever because no attribute you have happens all the time. 
There are times when we fail. There are times when this attribute just isn't true of us right now, right? So it can be really difficult. Why am I going through this long intro? Because if we don't first understand what the attributes are that should make us trust someone and what attributes should make us trustworthy, we will often feel incredibly alone because I don't know who I can trust. And I don't know that people will trust me. So I find myself myself really alone. Now, take that same knowledge and apply that to God. What things about God need to be true in order for me to trust him? And this is where we find ourselves in this passage. The passage we're going to look at today, Psalm 139, they identify three things about God that promise us that he can be trusted. Three attributes about God that promise that he can be trusted. And what you're going to see is that God truly, he promises, he demonstrates that he knows you, that he is with you, and that he has you. You're going to see the power of God, the presence of God, and the perception of God, and why that's so important for us. So let me dig in. Let's start with Psalm 139. I'm going to read through it, uh, a few verses here, and then we're just going to quickly walk through these three aspects, really what they are, or what you might more familiar, you'd be more familiar with, the three omnis of God, the omnipresence, the omnipotence, and the omniscience of God. These three omnis are the very attributes that make us know that we can trust them. Psalm 139. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the grave, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous. And I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you. When I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single One of them began. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This passage here written by David, and some some commentators say that these words that David uh, wrote were more reflective of the thoughts of Adam when Adam was actually formed first. Because in many times you would see throughout uh, Hebrew literature and Hebrew poetry and Hebrew books of wisdom, there would be times when they would write things uh, to to show some of the thoughts and reflections, maybe because they've been orally passed down, of some of the earliest folks that did not write their own words down. 
And so there's a, there's some language here that people seem, we won't go through that, but there's language here that seems to indicate that David might even be hearkening back to the experience of Adam. Now, that notwithstanding, what we see in these passages is David is, is leaning on these attributes of God. He's leaning on uh, what is it, how do I know that I can trust God? What are the things about God that make me certain that I can trust him? And so you look at the first four verses. Lord, you've searched me and known me. Think, think about that. In relationships with anyone, the first thing that you want to know is true is that you will be truly known by another. And when you want to make someone feel like they can trust you, you want to demonstrate that you truly know them. Again, to go back to when, when marriages uh, suffer infidelity, there's this stark reality, this truth that comes and it smacks you in the face because when someone does something to betray you, to betray your trust, to destroy the intimacy between you and that spouse, two things end up being proven there. You can't possibly, you couldn't possibly have known me the way that you said you did. Because if you had known me, you would know how crushing this would be. And I clearly can't possibly have known you the way I thought I did because I never would have perceived you to have done something like this to me. We desperately want to be known. And when we feel like we're known, we want that, that knowledge of one another to be protected, to be safeguarded. So when God says, when David says to God, Lord, you've searched me and you've known me, there's a safety there. There's nothing better than to feel like I can be in this position, I can be in this emotional disposition, and, I, and this person is going to know exactly where I am. They're going to know exactly how to engage. They're going to know exactly how to engage my heart. Not perfectly, but they're going to know generally where I am, how to meet me there, and how to lift me up. God does that perfectly. You've searched my heart. You've searched me, and you've known me. Sometimes it's incredible when some people who really know you, they don't even need all of your explanations to really know where you are. It's helpful. And sometimes to, 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 to clarify certain things, that's helpful. But sometimes when you've got a relationship with someone who truly knows you, it's a comfort to know I don't need all of the words, all of the perfect words and the right way that things are structured in order for them to get what, what I'm saying or what I feel. That's God all the time. And then David says, you know, when I sit up, sit down, uh, you know, when I stand up, you understand my thoughts from far away. You don't even have to be in my face. Sometimes you're like, man, this person, uh, they misunderstood me. If I could just get in front of them and be able to get some time and they can maybe see my face and hear the inflection in my voice, they would know what I meant. We learn that well. Sometimes it can be really hard to convey what you mean through a text message, right? Or through an email. Sometimes things get lost in translation. So immediately we think, if I could just get close proximity to them or virtual proximity through Zoom, if, I, if they can see my face while we're talking, then maybe they'll really understand me better. God doesn't even need that. God says, I know you. It doesn't matter where I am in the, in, in the universe and all of existence. I know you because I know your heart. I know your mind. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I know you. I understand your thoughts. Then he says, you observe my travels and my rest. You're aware of all my ways. In other words, I can't even hide anything. You know me. You know all the good things. You know all the not so good things. You know not only what I do, but you know why I do it. 
See, that's the difference. Many times, no matter what happens in relationships with humans, we might know what each other does. We won't always know why we do it. And in some time, if you're a person that uh, people look at and maybe you're in the public light and it's really easy to hide in plain sight, that can be so lonely. Sometimes it can be such a relief to know somebody sees through the veneer and can see truly who you are. God does that every time. David says, before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. So you see this omniscience, right? This word omniscience, it's spelled omni, which means all, and science, which comes from the word uh, from which we get the word knowledge. It means uh, God knows everything there is to know about you. He knows everything there is to know about uh, your motivations. He perceives you perfectly. You can trust the one who perceives you perfectly. You can trust the one who sees past the words you might use that might not be genuine. You can trust the one who sees past the behavior that you display that might look one way, even though something else is true. He can see through the times where maybe you're being really defensive because you don't trust the people around you and you don't think they see the things that are making you insecure or anxious, but God sees it. God sees it. So think about that truth. How does that affect us personally? Knowing that God knows you well, and not only does he know you well, but he's created you to be this uniquely special person that you are. What does that mean for your heart to know that how you are and who you are and all of its complexity, God knows it. He created you and he knows you. He knows when things go well. He knows when things don't. He knows everything that's going on in your life. He knows what's going on deep in your heart. He knows also what is then best for you. So this first omni, God is all-knowing. He knows everything there is to know about everything, which means he knows everything there is to know about you. If he knows everything about you, he is a God that can be trusted. He is a God that you can trust to see you authentically. He is a God that you can trust that is not going to overlook certain things and go, oh, wow, I didn't know that about you. Oh, I didn't know that that was hurtful for you. Sometimes in relationships, it can be so hard when somebody unintentionally says something or does something that can be really hurtful and they don't even realize that they've done it. And then you get upset because they didn't even realize just how hurtful it was. They don't even realize how much in pain you are right now. God always does. God can be trusted. And then you come to this next omni, omnipotence. It's again, a combination of all and potence, this idea of power, God being all powerful. God has uh, this ability to be more, he already is more powerful than anything or anyone else in the entire universe. So if I were to pick, if I were to tell you, pick something that is really powerful, pick someone that is really powerful, super easy. You do this with kids and, and they'll start throwing out different names and they'll throw out superpowers and they'll throw out crazy athletes or whatever. And you stop and you let them know, well, God is even more powerful than that. 
And kids, it takes them a minute and they start going, wow, like the way that I've judged power has been through these things. And, and I see and I'm being told that God is way more powerful than that. Now, you won't read the word omnipotence in the Bible, but you're going to read many words that describe God's power as mighty and great. One particular name of God refers to his omnipotence. That name is the Almighty God. You'll see Almighty or the Lord Almighty, right? Who is the King of glory? The Lord God mighty in battle, right? There's this idea that God is, has this, this might, this incredible power that supersedes that of normal human beings. You see that word Almighty or might used about 345 times in the Bible. The prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament talked about God's power a lot and called him the Lord Almighty. In Jeremiah 32, you see him referring to the might and the power and and the power of God that everything that was made was made through his strength, through his power, through his might. And what does it say afterward? Therefore, nothing is too hard for you. So when I see that you're powerful, that tells me that you can be trusted. In other words, put it this way. It's not enough for somebody to know how to help you if they don't have the power to help you. You know, you could have somebody that's like, man, I I know what you need and, and I know that you're in need of this and I wish I had the ability to do it, but I don't. I, w- I know that you need somebody to, to, to lift you up out of the water and I see that you're struggling in the water. I just wish I had the ability to swim. I wish I had the muscles to pull you up but I at least know what you need. So we start with that first omni. The knowledge of God is super important. I can trust him because he knows, but then my trust might might end right at that point of knowing because it's like, it's good that you know how, but you don't have the competency or the muscle to do it. But God does. God has this all power and he uses his power to do many things. You see throughout the scriptures, he creates and performs miracles like parting the Red Sea winning battles, healing people. Every time Jesus healed someone, that was God's power at work. So anyone who trusts in God, anyone who leans on God, is someone that is experiencing or has experienced his power. You trust that he has the power to do the things that are going to be what's necessary for you to survive, to make it, to trust him. This, uh, you see this in the New Testament. You see Paul making usage of, of this attribute. When you look at Ephesians 1, verses 19 and 20, look at what he says. As a matter of fact, I'll start with 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, which is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. What is Paul praying for Christians to know? Because again, you can only trust based on those attributes that you know. That's what makes you trust. It's not a blind trust. I trust because those attributes are things that make God trustworthy. So when you look at this passage, for whom is God's power at work? It's for those who believe, those who are his. My power is directed toward you. I I'm able to hold you and protect you. So what did we start with? I know you. I'm able to know what you need and know where you need to be, even more so than you even know what you need. I know what you need. 
And I have the power, the ability, the capability, the capacity to take you where you need to be, to protect you where you need to be protected, to grow you, to challenge you where you need to be challenged. I have that power. So if you know that God has that power, does that not give you confidence to be able to ask for his help in his work in your life and this expectation that he indeed will do it? That's what we mean when we talk about this, this omnipotence, this incredible power to do what it is that God will do in order to protect you, to take care of you, to deliver you. You see it again in Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3.20, the same thing uh, comes up. Now we see this in one of the, one, sometimes we'll say this as our benediction. Now to him who was able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the what? To the power that works in us. So God is all powerful and he's omniscient, right? I'm sorry, he's all powerful and he's omniscient. He knows all things. But then there's this third piece that we see. And you see this brought up in, in, in the Psalms again. And the Psalm that we started with, Psalm 139, take a look at verse five and six again there. You've encircled me and you've placed your hand on me. Now that, that word could also mean in your hand that holds me, the power of your hand holds me. But that first part, you have encircled me. And then you see this uh, harken back to again later when he says, where could I go? Where could I go to escape your presence? Where could I go? If I were to, if I were to go, uh, you know, I know you're going to be in heaven. I know when I'm in the grave, you're there. I know that if I were to go all the way to the east, you'd be there. If I went all the way to the west, you'd be there. There's no place I can go where you are not. That should bring us comfort. Why? Because it shows that God is always present. You realize that when you were born, every human being on the planet that has lived or will live runs into a real difficult time understanding that things uh, don't disappear just because you don't see them. Uh, uh, It takes a while for our brains to physically understand that things can be present even when our eyes indicate something different. Psychologists refer to this as object permanence. Object permanence means that an object still exists even if it is hidden. So what does it require you to do? You do this with children. Children love peekaboo. Why do they love peekaboo? Because when you cover their eyes, everything's gone. And when you remove your hand or whatever it is from their eyes, there you are again. Or maybe you hide behind a chair and they look around and they don't know where you are. Then you jump out again. There you are again. You'll see sometimes people will make these kind of TikTok videos of people doing this with animals, right? They'll have a sheet. And they'll stand in front of the dog with the sheet covering them. And then they'll drop the sheet and run away really quickly. And the dog looks around and doesn't see the person anymore. And they're wondering where they go, where they go. Object permanence is something that as humans, we struggle with as a part of our childhood uh, development. And it takes a while, right? It takes a while for a child to form this mental representation of the object, even though they don't see it anymore. So if, they, if, if, if their eyes get covered, it takes a while for them to get this mental kind of schematic for what their parent, where their parent really is. They have to have that in their head first. In other words, they have to know my parent is still there, even though I don't see them. When they're young, they struggle with that. They don't see you, they cry. But this idea of object permanence happens. So now, uh, you, you, yes, if you place a toy under a blanket, the child who has achieved object permanence knows it's there and they can actively seek it. 
So when you are in a position, and we all have been there, we've been there over the last year and a half, everybody's been asking, where is God? I'm seeing these horrible things happen. And it's not even just the pandemic. Yes, we've seen half a million people die. We're seeing horrific things happen in the world right now. And we're going, where is God? We're seeing a group of people in Palestine right now be horribly dealt with, horribly mistreated, have been dealing, living in an apartheid state for the better part of 70 years. And people have constantly had to go, where is God? How is it even possible that fellow image bearers can be treated like less than human for decades? More so even, people can say, Where is God when I'm looking for the people who claim to follow God to actually care for them? Where is God when I'm dealing with horrific things and being uh, completely dealt with horribly? I've been uh, mistreated. I've been disenfranchised. And I see people who claim to follow this loving God. Where is he? Because I'm not seeing evidence of it. I'm just seeing bloodshed and carnage. Sometimes in those really difficult times, and listen, David has been there. David has been in the midst of horrific bloodshed, horrific wars, horrible things happening uh, that aren't necessarily even fair. And he's got to still hold on to the fact that, yes, God knows all things and God is all powerful, but God is not missing. God is still here. Sometimes your eyes don't show it and your experience don't show it and they're legitimate. Sometimes we're sitting there going, I don't understand. I don't know why this is happening. In my, in my mind, God should just interv- intervene, and yet he doesn't. And so that is the example of the toy being covered up with the blanket. And it's like, God's still got to be there. I need some type of spiritual object permanence. I need some way to be reminded, even in the most horrific situations, somehow. And I don't say this lightly because I struggle with this, but God is still there. God is still present. God is still everywhere at the same time. There is not a place in the universe where God cannot be found. Where can we go to get away from God? What that means is we can even go into abject suffering and think that God isn't there. We can have a lot of questions. We can have a lot of issues. We can have a lot of complaints. A third of the Psalms, at least, are complaints to God about the way things are. And God invites those. But the fact that we know he's there means we can bring our complaints and our petitions to him. Lord, there's injustice here. And because I believe you're there, I can still bring these cries for justice. I can still bring this calling. How long, oh Lord? We say that and we don't understand. There's this, this idea of, Lord, we are, we've been patient waiting for you to intervene here and you haven't yet. How long? We're able to do that. Why are we able to do that? Because we know that he knows what's up. He knows what's happening. We know he has the power to end it, which means, and we know that he's present, which means we know we can keep going to him and saying, God, we're still dealing with this. Lord, we know that you care and we know that you're going to do something about it. We want you to do something about it right now. And we're bringing this petition to you. That even in the hardest times, we should find some comfort in that. It can be really hard, sometimes seemingly impossible. And yet we have to hold on to this idea that God really does have us. God is truly near to us and God truly does know us. He knows what we're going through. He has the power to fix it and he is never far from us. The omnis, 
These are the three truths, the three attributes of God that should bring us real comfort, real hope. What it means is that God is more powerful than anyone else in the entire universe. He's present everywhere at the same time, and he knows everything there is to know. So what should that mean for you in your life? This is the truth you need to know. And this is the truth you need to remember that he knows you. He knows whatever it is that's going on in your life. He has you. He can do something about it. And he's with you. God is always near you. This should give you confidence to handle anything. Listen, think of the three omnis the way you would think of three legs of a chair. Maybe it's a three-legged chair, right? Two in the back, one in the front, or however you choose to configure it. And in those three legs, right, you've got uh, his omniscience over here, his omnipresence over here, and his omnipotence over here. And you've got these three legs there to this chair. And when you sit on the chair, you finally get to rest. God wants you to rest knowing that he's always near you, that he's got the power to hold you, that he knows what's going on in your life. The Bible says that you can rest on that. You can trust him in whatever he chooses to do for any situation that we find ourselves in. We can trust him to know. We can trust him to care. We can trust him to see us. We can trust him to truly know us even when we don't know him well. That's the thing. I may not see God, but God always sees me. I may not know him as well as I should, but he always knows me. I may not be as near to him as I should, but he's always near to me. God can be trusted. So wherever you find yourself today, whatever it is that you're thinking through, whatever it is that you're struggling through, Whatever it is that may, listen, there are times where things can happen and it just makes us really hard to, it makes it really hard to know if I can trust God. I know as a pastor, we're always supposed to talk as if we're always on the cloud nine with our faith in God. But there are times for me where I do wonder, can I trust God here? Can, can he be trusted? And the beauty of what God, what God does is God says, I don't want you to trust in your own knowledge in order to determine whether I can be trusted. I want to give you the knowledge of myself so that you can refer back to that whenever there are times where you are struggling with trusting. These Psalms are written down so that we have something to hold on to when we're struggling with trusting. So there are times when I'm struggling to trust. God, do you really know? Okay, I'm reminded you do know. God, are you really here? Because right now it looks like you're not, but I'm reminded that you are. God, are you really able? to handle this, because sometimes it feels like I, I question that. And then I'm reminded, no, you, you indeed are. How does that bring comfort? Because it should. The goal of the gospel, the, the movement of God in our lives is to show, I am not only the God that created you, I didn't just create you and walk off. I created you for relationship. I created you to be known, and I am the one that knows you. I created you to be held, and I'm the one that holds you. I created you to be in a situation, to be in a place where you are never alone. And I am the one that is always there. When we know that about God and we start to embody those attributes with others, now we are imaging him well. That's, and that's the, the main thing that we put our trust in. That is the God in whom we place our trust. Does this bring hope? My prayer for us as a church 
is that we would be a people that engages regularly, maybe even having to fight for this in our lives, but truly believing that our God knows us, that our God holds us, and that our God is near to us always and forever. Let's pray. Father, you are, um, you are great. You are good. Father, it's, it's one thing for you to know things. It's another th- uh, thing for you to have the power to do it. But God, if you know it and you have the power to do it, but you're far from us, it's hard for us to believe that you're loving. And yet, God, you show us that you truly are a God that is not only all-knowing and all-powerful, but you are ever-present. You are near to the brokenhearted. You are faithful and just to forgive. You heal. You bring real comfort. You're the God of all comfort. You bring us real peace. So God, I pray that you would remind us, either through your own divine uh, entering into our lives or the ways in which you remind us of who you are. Give us your truth. Give us your knowledge. Give us your words that we uh, can use to encourage ourselves and to encourage each other. God, I pray that we would know that you are so near, we can bring everything to you. We can bring anything to you. And that you truly are the God that doesn't just exist. You are the God that exists to be trusted by us. God, will you continue to move on our hearts and show us all the ways in which you can be trusted as we learn your attributes. May your attributes overwhelm us in such a way that we have no other choice but to embody them to live those out, albeit imperfectly, as we wait for that day that they will be perfectly refined. And God, we pray this now in the perfect, matchless name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Receive this benediction and listen again. We hear this every week, but listen to these words and try to pick up the the notes of, of, of God's power and God's knowledge and God's presence. Now unto him who was able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. May all of God's people say, Amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.